Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Dune Class 10. We are now uh, approaching the end of this book we have tonight, and then we have one more class on uh, on the text, and then oh, so we're going to go through the end of the book next time. Theoretically, there's a lot still to cover there at the end, um, and then but then we still have the one uh, bonus class there at the end <clears throat> to. Um, finish things out and to uh, take any last questions that you guys have. Last questions, I say, you know, as if we're, we're totally going to finish everybody's questions on Dune there uh, um, <laughs> in the last class. But anyhow, that's the plan. And then after that, we uh, will be, soon thereafter, we'll be starting our next book, the last of our first series, the last of year one of the Mythgard Academy. And uh, uh, which reminds me, if uh, you are in our voting pool for last year, this is the last <clears throat> election we're uh, we're doing with the um, our old figures from 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 last year's fundraiser. And uh, voting is going on right now, so if you haven't voted yet, you should. Um, uh, but uh, you know, for those of you who aren't in our voting pool, the finalists for our next book are there are four finalists. Um, Watership Down by Richard Adams, uh, The Book of Lost Tales Part 2 uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, The Princess Bride, <coughs> uh, and uh, uh, Watership Down by Richard Adams. Uh, so um, I, I'm, I, this is a great selection. Um, and yeah, I, I, yes, I, I know, I, I, I on purpose said Watership Down twice. That was a subtle, I'm trying to be subtle. Uh, in my attempt to sway the, to sway the vote, see, I, I, I've not been campaigning. I've been very good, um, <clears throat> but Watership Down has been a finalist now three times in a row, and I would love to talk about Watership Down. Anyway, but any of those three books actually would really be awesome. Um, uh, it's a, I, I mean, all of our finalist slates have been have been very good. But the, this one, I, I, I am especially excited about. There are no. Uh, uh, there, there, there are no duds on that list. Um, so anyway, we will see. I should be able to announce the winner uh, next week in next week's class. So, um, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, the in, on that <clears throat> on a related subject, of course, last week I announced that our uh, fundraiser was officially launching for year two uh, to keep the academy going. You know, we started, uh, you know, as I announced and you know, showed you the webpage, we have a, a $14,000 goal, <clears throat> either, you know, it, it, through a combination of, of lump sums and monthly pledges for the coming year. Um, and that's, you know, that's pretty much what we need to keep the lights on, you know, keep things running. Um, at Signum, as, you know, many of you know, uh, we at Signum University, which is the the parent institution of Mythgard, makes Mythgard possible. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of things, uh, and, and you know, one of the things we're really committed to is for our regular classes keeping our prices as low as possible, and uh, for everything else giving away as much as we can. That's why we've been doing you know these free classes, and and we do as much of that kind of thing as we can, and uh, uh, that of course doesn't uh, lead to highly lucrative <laughs> turnover. So we really um, we really rely upon uh, people's donations. And again, we so we 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 set our goal for fourteen thousand uh, dollars and we have um, you know of course our, our costs have really risen since we um, started doing the free downloads thing. Of course we were you know paying for the hosting of these files and for the downloading for everybody. Um, and you know we really want to be able to keep that going. We certainly don't want to 
make anybody pay for those. Um, but of course, it's not free to us. So anyhow, um, we have scheduled like six weeks for this uh, 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 campaign, and the response from you guys has been amazing. I am I am amazed. I am astounded again. Um, let me uh, just share this with you. Uh, these are our current standings. Uh, uh, I'm actually being informed that this is slightly even. That, that this is slightly behind. Doesn't include uh, pledges that have come in in the last hour or so. Um, so it's actually just a little bit higher than this. Um, but as you can see, we're we're already, we're already around eleven five. Uh, now we're we're only we're only twenty five hundred dollars shy of our goal after one week um, of the campaign. It's been it's been really wonderful. It's been just amazing, um, which has led me to think. Okay, well let's um, let's think of some other things then. If we are able to raise our fourteen thousand um, to keep the lights on, there's some other stuff that we could do. If uh, if we raised more money, here's my idea. Tell me what you think of this idea. My idea was, um, one of the things that uh, a couple people have said, with extreme politeness, I will add, is, um, they're like, you know, I've really been enjoying the classes, and um, it's um, fun and everything, you know, doing classes with you, but it would also kind of be fun doing classes with other people sometimes. And I totally agree. The primary reason uh, that we're doing classes with me is that this is basically my contribution to the fundraiser. I'm donating my time uh, to do these classes. Um, and those of you who have been involved with Signum University, those of you who have been um, students in our uh, master's degree program, will know I've talked about this a couple times um, to people in our program. There are really sort of two um, two convictions that I have that are that really centrally inform our business model at Mythgard and Signum. And the first is uh, to keep tuition as low as possible for students. I think that high tuition, um, especially tuition which you know compels students uh, to take out loans and uh, sell themselves as debt slaves, uh, is, is horrible. And you know, we're trying to do our part to make a difference there. So I don't want to charge much, but the other thing that I feel very strongly about is the way that so many faculty are exploited and terribly underpaid um, because there's so much competition. The job market is, is just awash in people who are qualified uh, to teach for a series of other unscrupulous reasons. Um, uh, many universities feel that they can get away with paying people almost nothing. Um, and I think that's horrible. And I think that teachers deserve to get paid for what they do. Um, and it's, I um, don't want to be a part of that. So if I were to hire somebody else who wasn't me donating my time, I would want to pay them and to be able to pay them well. So that's one of the reasons why, well, that's the primary reason why the main classes have been me all the way through. But if we, since we are sort of threatening to blow by our, our, our goal, you know, in barely over the first week, um, I, uh, I, I, my, here's, here's, here's my thought. My thought is I would like to do a bonus lecture series, not necessarily extra courses, um, but, but one-off lectures by 
other people, people who are not me, to be able to bring in to, uh, to have again free open to the public lectures just like all the rest of the Mythgard Academy stuff um, from people and I would actually really want to give our voters to give our contributors um, a get say in whom we get. What kind of topics would you like to hear about? Are there particular people, you know, the particular teachers, scholars, writers uh, that you would like to hear from? Um, and uh, see what we can do. See what, see what we can put together. So, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll sort of think about that. I'll be announcing some sort of more specific uh, details uh, about this kind of thing. But I think this would be really fun. And I guess this is the kind of thing that we'd be enabled to do um, if, we, uh, if, we, if we, you know, carry on and go, uh, and go further with the, uh, with the campaign. Um, so it would be, I, I, I think this would be really fun. I would love to, um, uh, to, be able to, to be able to host this. So we'll see. We'll see. As I say, I'll announce more details later, but that's, I just want to tell you that's sort of the direction that I'm thinking about this. I want to encourage you to spread the word. I've been really grateful, not only, of course, for the contributions, which are fantastic, um, but for um, the, uh, the, the efforts of many of you to help to publicize it. You know, I've been seeing um, people linking uh, to, the, to our campaign page and, uh, and sort of spreading the word on social media. Um, uh, and that's uh, that's 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 really helpful. So certainly, you know, anything that uh, um, that you guys can do to help to help to spread the word, you know, to let other people who, uh, you know, who 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 love this kind of thing know, um, that would be that would be great. Something we're really we're really grateful for. Um, so. Um, Yes. Oh, and uh, I've uh, been reminded. Of course, I do want to to, to pause for a second before we're, we'll we'll shift to Dune here in a second. But I do want to pause for a second to uh, uh, to wish a, a happy anniversary to uh, uh, to Ed and Sharon Powell, Ed, our our uh, our, our our chair of the council, uh, uh, our our. Mind of metal and wheels himself. So, uh, and thanks, Ed, for all that you do. And, and, I, and I want to just make sure everybody knows how much Ed Powell has been doing behind the scenes here for the Mythgard Academy. Um, you know, not only has he set up all of the technical arrangements for you know devising the voting system and uh, and 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 keeping everything together and and uh, and making everything function, but he's and of course he's also you know arranged and is doing all of the. Uh, all of the, the 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 technical side to to put our our campaign page together and and make all of that happen. Um, he has been uh, just indefatigable indefatigable behind the scenes uh, in making the Mythgard Academy happen. Um, so I am I am deeply grateful, you know, Ed, to all of your work for this year, and uh, uh, and th and I am I am I am I am honored that you guys are spending your anniversary. At the Dune class with us. <laughs> so, um, anyway, let's uh, talk about Dune. Let's let's move on to Book Three, The Prophet. Um, and I want to start uh, with something quite similar to where we left off, um, which was you remember at the end, near the end of class last time, we were talking about um, the scene with the Harkonnens and the Fenrings. We talked about the Fenrings and their humming language, which was fun. Um, but then I was also looking at, of course. You know, one of my one of my favorite recurring elements uh, in uh, uh, in 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 the book, which is the the bull and the matador pictures, um, and seeing what Baron Harkonnen is doing with that, um, and in particular, we talked about that scene, which I subtitled "The Baron's Gaff," the uh, mistake that he makes, um, the blunder that he committed. In front of Count Fenring, and we did some sort of speculation. I did some speculation about that. Um, so, of course, we start book three 
with Baron Harkonnen and Fade Rautha and Thufur Hawat. Um, and I want to, uh, um, I want to, I want to talk uh, a little bit more about the, about, uh, about the, about those scenes and what we see in those, because I think this is one, you know, I, I've been bringing up several times that there there have been numerous occasions on which I've been trying to, well, not quantify, but at least demonstrate clearly the kinds of things that I think make this book so brilliant. Um, to to try to I to try to, to at least point to some of the elements that I think make this book such a fascinating read, and um, one of the things that we get. Well, let me. Um, let me show you the first passage here. So, okay. So this is with this is uh, context of this. Um, this is right after, um, right after Fade Rotha has been caught in his uh, assassination attempt um, of the Baron, um, and he. Uh, so, so he thinks you know he's worried that he's about to be killed. Um, this passage comes when. The Baron and Fade Ratha are marching out, and you know, the Baron is making him walk in front of him so that he can't see what he's doing. He thinks he might get stabbed in the back at any second, um, uh, you know. So it's certainly for Fade Ratha a a, a very a very tense moment, um, and the, the Baron starts this line of conversation. They have a new prophet, a religious leader of some kind among the Fremen. The Baron said they call him Wadib. Very funny, really. It means the mouse. I've told Raban to let them have their religion. It'll keep them occupied. That's very interesting, Uncle, Fadrautha said. He turned into the private corridor to his uncle's quarters, wondering, why does he talk about religion? Is it some subtle hint to me? Yes, isn't it, the Baron said. Now, what I love about this passage is the complexity of our own sort of interpretive grid uh, as we are looking at this. Um, remember, in this chapter, throughout here, um, we are jumping back and forth from Fade Ratha's head to, um, uh, to Baron Harkonnen's head very rapidly, right? Um, we get what almost amounts to a uh, running commentary by each one of them, which at times almost sounds like a second conversation that's going on, though they're not hearing each other, right? Uh, culminating in that one wonderful moment when Fade Rautha thinks, get on with it, old fool, and the Baron immediately says, you, you, you think of me as an old fool, <laughs> right? Almost as if he heard the thought and is responding to it. He's not, right? Um, one of the things that I think is in, there's several things that I think that, that is really interesting about this. Um, but the main thing I want to focus on is sort of the progression, the way that this story and that narrative technique has developed over time. We have often been shown the inside of people's heads at various points. There have been numerous other scenes in which we've gotten more than one, uh, you know, the inside the, the inside of more than one person's head, right? Um, Philip Lord is recalling specifically uh, Paul and Jessica's conversation at the end of book one. Certainly that's one place where we, where we really saw this and we talked about that to some extent um, and the, the, the effect that that has, um, the impact that it has on us 
in sort of the, the way that that serves in that conversation between Paul and Jessica as a cue to sort of interpret things, right? It shows us more clearly how differently they're looking at things, right? It shows, it shows us much more clearly than just their words do, the gaps between their understandings, right? Their, their, their outlooks there. Um, here, we get it more intensely than I remember anywhere else in this book. So as if we're, as I said, as if we're reading, well, it's not even like two different conversations. It's more like reading three things at the same time, right? So on the one hand, we see more of it here. Um, but at the same time, there's now this additional level that's been added to it. And that's what I really wanted to emphasize here. Um, the Baron, apropos of nothing, brings up this new prophet or religious leader among the Fremen, right? And Fade Rautha, in his extremely neutral, you know, behind his extremely neutral, that's very interesting, uncle, which he says, because, clearly because he doesn't know what to say, because he's trying to parse this, right? He's like, okay, what is he implying? What is he, this has to be like code for something. There's some kind of, there's some kind of hint. There's some kind of innuendo here. Um, you know, there has to be some key to understand why he's saying this particular, he's not just making small talk, right? Certainly not in this context. Um, so here's Fade Rautha convinced that there's something behind it. And there probably is, right? But of course, we as readers see something else entirely behind it. So we have on the one hand, the two people who are saying one thing, but both of them thinking other things, which we see, though they, them, they, they don't see each other's thoughts, but we do. And so that we already have a fairly complicated matrix through which to interpret their words, right? We know what they're thinking, and so knowing what they're thinking, we are given an insight into what are the hidden meanings, what is the implication behind, uh, uh, behind, their, behind their words, behind their conversation. Um, so again, we, we're given these tools to read into it. Now, that kind of reading into is something we've been trained to do, right? throughout by, by this time of the book. Remember back to that dinner party, right, at uh, the Atreides house just prior to the disaster, um, to the betrayal. You know, we saw a lot of, we talked at the time about how many things there, we, you know, we could, we knew, Paul knew that things were going on, that something was happening, and but we didn't know what, um, like that, you know, that, um, Anyway, it's, there, 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 there's, there are several possible examples there. Um, but, but again, so you know, we're, we're getting at the very least prompted to do that kind of interpretation, to think in those ways. It's not just what they say, but how they say it. Why did they bring up one particular thing? Are there particular words that they say? Like, remember the code um, that, uh, um, that Paul and Jessica receive, um, right, that, that contains certain key words that they focus on. The content of the message is not even really relevant. What matters are the appearance of those are of those of those key words. So again, that's that's a kind of cue to us. It's a kind of direction to us. We're 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 prompted, we're invited at the very least, to apply ourselves in this kind of way, to think with this kind of care about people's words. And you know, certainly the Count Fenring scene 
I should say, the Count and Lady Fenring. We certainly don't want to uh, 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 act as if Count Fenring is, uh, is, is, is the only important one there. Um, so we've got the Fenrings and the Baron and Fade. <clears throat> and I talked a little bit in the last class about the way in which Fade Rautha is deliberately enacting an allegory, right? He wants his actions interpreted. He is performing these things hoping that his own actions will be taken essentially metaphorically, right? He wants the, the idea that the poison was on the wrong knife. He wants them to be taking that and applying that and interpreting that. Um, so, so again, we see, we see all of these things. Kevin Morgan is pointing to the meeting of Stilgar and Jessica as well. Yeah, I agree. There's, there's, there, there's, there's plenty there. Sometimes our attention isn't even drawn very heavily to it, but again, we've been sort of conditioned um, by this. I mean, we, we, it's, it's part of our training. Uh, by this point, we've not been, been a Jesuit trained, but we've been trained by the narrative to think this way. Um, this scene, again, to me, is almost like overload, right? Um, because we're getting all of this extra information, not only their words, but their thoughts, and we have to interpret both their words and, in a different way, their thoughts. In, in, in the same way, right? Presumably when they're thinking, they're not like using doublespeak to themselves, right? They're not, you know, they're not just, uh, you know, giving themselves subtle hints and, uh, uh, and sending themselves subtle messages. But yet we have to think about what they're thinking in connection with other people's words and thoughts. And especially, of course, behind the whole, th the background of the entire thing, of this, of this whole conversation between the Baron and Fade Rautha, lurks the figure of Thufur Hawat, right? Um, whose side is he on? He's playing both sides against the middle. We begin to see Thufur's own plans uh, being being laid, right, being played out. Um, and again, we're invited to not only look past their words, but I think also look past their thoughts and to think, okay, what lies behind that? Where did that come from? Um, are, are they being manipulated by... Are, are they correct or incorrect in their assessment of things? Are they being themselves manipulated, and I think especially by Thufur Hawat. But then, in this moment, we get another level entirely above that. Um, again, all of that stuff still going on, but then at the same time, we now have dramatic irony added to the entire thing. Um, and that is, dramatic irony is when we, the reader, know more than the characters about what they, you know, they about what they say. So, so a character says something and it has a significance, you know, we the readers perceive a significance in it um, that, uh, that the, the character themselves um, uh, don't see. Um, and in this, you know, you know that's sort of the classic example of dramatic irony is Oedipus, right? Um, you know, in, uh, uh, in, in Oedipus the King, when, um, you know, Oedipus says, you know, things like, uh, you know, I here call down a curse upon whoever killed the old king, and of course it's him, right? And we know it's him, all the audience knows, that because they all know the story of Oedipus already, right? So we all know that, uh, that, that Oedipus is calling down a curse upon himself, but he doesn't realize that, right? So that, that gap between his understanding of the significance of his own words and our understanding of the significance of his words, that's where dramatic irony lies. So, of course, we can see there's a heavy dramatic irony in this passage, right? I'm not even quite sure I understand why the Baron is bringing up Wadib here. 
I suspect that Fade Rautha is quite correct, that there is some subtle hint to him here, that he's not just talking about something random and apparently inconsequential in order to make conversation and make Fade nervous. That's, of course, possibly what... Uh, uh, you know, one of the factors there, but I don't think that's all of it. I, I Again, I, I sort of agree with Fade. Um, though with Fade, I'm not sure I, I see exactly what it is. But for us, as readers, this has an entirely different meaning, right? I mean, working from the bottom up, um, that's very interesting, Uncle. Yes, isn't it? The Baron said. To which we would reply, yeah, yeah, it is interesting, isn't it, Baron? Um, it is way more interesting than you know. Um, what wouldn't you know, Baron? What wouldn't you give, Baron, to know exactly how interesting um, the business about the rise of Muad'Dib is? Both in the sense of the fact that it's Paul Atreides and he doesn't know, but also um, the, 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 the impact that Muad'Dib is going to have. Um, how interesting this decision to let them have their religion. Um, you know, it'll keep them occupied. Yeah. Yeah, it'll keep them occupied. It'll keep them occupied with destroying you. Um, but uh, but anyway, yeah, it, it's so again we, we we see this. He speaks of it. You know, it's oh, it means the mouse, right? We know what it means, right? They don't. He doesn't really know what it means. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, it means the mouse. It's not that he's inaccurate about that. Um, but of course, we know what that means to the fremen. We you know we've talked about the naming scene, right? Um, and the significance uh, of that name. The Baron obviously doesn't know those things. He just thinks it's funny, right? He just thinks, you know, that it fits, it seems to fit into the Baron with the whole mental picture he has of the Fremen, right? We've seen from the very beginning how dismissive uh, the, the Baron is of, uh, of the Fremen, right? How he, you know, he, he, he considers them not only uh, very few, but 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 very worthless and not worth taking into consideration. So the fact that they that these, you know, ragtag bunches of of of, of idiots out in the desert uh, are now worshiping this guy that they call the mouse just seems to him like you know well you know that's the fremen all over right that's the baron's interpretation of this. Of course we know the many, many ways in which the Baron's assessment of the situation is quite disastrously wrong. Um, Nancy says it's so characteristic of the Baron to sneer at a mouse, too. Um, yeah, yeah, and James points out that a mouse is even a smaller threat than the rabbits. No way that a mouse would be able to stand up to the bees, right? Clearly. Um, yeah, and Kevin, Morgan, I agree. It is really interesting how the Baron keeps stumbling into the facts of the situation. Again, it's one of the reasons why both of these two chapters are really rich in dramatic irony, right? But you'll notice what that means. I talked about our training, right? The way that the narrative has kind of prompted us all the way through. It's trained us to read it in particular ways, right? To be to do this kind of the kind of active interpretation, which Paul is himself being trained to do by, uh, you know, by by Thufir Hawat uh, and Jessica primarily. Um, uh, it, this is so. So again, you know, we're being conditioned and trained in that way, but also by what we have seen. And the way in which we've, you know, all of the things that we've seen, which of course nobody, no, no, no other single character has seen all of the things that we've seen. Because of all the things that we've seen to this point, now we are in a position of knowing much more, right? So we can perceive layers of 
depth, layers of layers of you know we 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 can now put things together in ways that nobody else can. The only person who does like that is Paul, right? Um, there is a way. This is one of the couple ways in which the book, the this sort of the jumping around into people's heads, is kind of another one, in which um, the narrative itself, to some extent, and I don't I don't, I don't want to go too far with it, but um, to some extent does I think emulate the experience of Paul's prescient vision. You know, I've talked about this a little bit in the context of Princess Irulan's, um uh, epigraphs, right? The, 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 the chapter headers, the way in which we're given these glimpses of the future, but never a consistent glimpse, right? Never a, a contiguous narrative of the future, just, you know, the crests of that undulating kerchief of time, right? Um, so we, 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 we pick out a bit here and there and can use that to put together a picture. Um, anyway, so I've talked about it in that sense, but I think in here, you know, here as well, we are, remember how Paul so frequently has that experience where he sees the significance of things that people say and they don't understand what's at stake, right? They don't understand what's going on. Um, they don't understand exactly why it's so important. Um, but, um, uh, but anyway, uh, so I, I think it's, this is, that, that's why I wanted to, to sort of focus on this, less because of the significance of this moment for the plot, though of course it has some importance for the plot, but more just because of how Herbert is handling the narrative here. And I just, I, I just think that this is so cool. It's, uh, uh, it's really, it's really fun uh, to talk about. Um, uh, good. So, um, yeah, interesting. Carol and Morehouse is saying that the Baron being so enormous uh, reminds her of uh, it, it puts her in mind of the, sort of the comical stories of an elephant being frightened by a mouse um, yeah Carolyn I think that there is a kind of irony there um, I mean, it's not that I necessarily think that Herbert is deliberately attempting to invoke you know elephant and mouse specifically um, but but Carolyn it certainly does fit with the larger picture right certainly with a larger picture of the Baron's worldview, for instance, right? Um, it's not only that he is enormously fat, but he believes himself to be enormously powerful. Remember, does anyone remember the first image we're given of the Baron Harkonnen? What, what is, is, is Baron Harkonnen doing the first time we meet him? Do you remember? Remember the, his opening scene? This is a... This is a a kind of an unfair question to ask. It's, it requires a, a an above and beyond level of recall that is not really reasonable to ask. So don't feel bad if you can't peg this. But but do you happen to, does anyone happen to remember? Nancy, yeah, he's sitting in the dark. Uh, yeah, there's food involved, Carissa. Yeah, there always is. Um, yes, yeah, Stephen, you've got it. He's got that globe of Arrakis. And he's reaching out his fat, beringed hand, and he's spinning and stopping the globe, the uh, the of 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 Arrakis. Um, to some extent, this seems to me, um, in uh, in retrospect, a, a a really interesting glimpse of the Baron's own sort of worldview, right? Um, his own sort of sense of himself, really. Um, we looked at that scene 
Um, and I think you know one of the the sort of the, the the immediate significant or the immediate impact of that scene on our experience as readers is to giving us a glimpse into the Baron, right? Helping us to understand what he's like. That's where we, you know, we get the first um, uh, sort of sickening references to his pedophilia. We get his uh, you know we we're talking at the time, remember about uh, the contrast with the Atreides, right? We've just been hearing about some of the comparatively noble things about the Atreides, and, and uh, remember we were talking about, you know, human versus animal back then in the first class, uh, which seems so long ago, and indeed was two and a half months ago. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so, you know, but, but that moment of him, you know, he, he, he's huge, right? He believes he has Arrakis literally in the palm of his hand, right? Um, he believes he has the situation entirely under control, and you know he can just reach out and stop the world when he wants to, right? Um, and then you know make it spin and dance to his will again. Um, so in that sense, Carolyn, you know the uh, the the the, sen the the sense in which this mouse that he overlooks, right, that he laughs at, um, uh, is going to, 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 you know, to come back and quite terrify him before the end, uh, seems to me, um, seems to me a very poignant kind of thing, um, and an important, um, unimportant element of this. Um, it's funny because, of course, the Baron Harkonnen is has been allied with the Emperor before, but of course we see in these two chapters how he is certainly not just, you know, uh, uh, in, in lockstep with the Emperor. We see him scheming against the Emperor, and the Emperor beginning to scheme against him. Um, but at the same time, within the context of this story, the Emperor is never really as present, is never, is never sort of quite as real. Uh, as uh, as Baron Harkonnen is, you know, he's been the central figure, not just the central most evil figure, which he certainly has been also, um, but uh, but he's the one who has really sort of stood for what Paul is overthrowing, what Leto was fighting against in the first place, um, and uh, um, so so again, you know, Carolyn, I'm coming back to that. Uh, you know your sort of elephant mouse image, and I do think that it uh, um, is an important thing to see that people believe. You know, to to all outside appearance, the idea of the Fremen rising up and taking down the Emperor would be more, you know, uh, sort of ludicrous than uh, a mouse terrifying an elephant. But um, <clears throat> but of course, we see that's exactly uh, what is going to happen. Um, it all depends on your grid, right? It all depends on the point of view from which you look at things. Who is really controlling Arrakis, right? There's that very interesting conversation that Paul has with Gurney at the end, right? And Gurney's like, you know, when Paul says, the spice is the most precious thing in the world to the guildsmen, and we control the spice. And Gurney's like, uh dude, no you don't, the Harkonnens control the spice, right? They own Arrakis. And Paul's like, no, actually, they don't control it. We control it. Um, and again, it's it's depends on how you look at things, right? The Baron Harkonnen believes he has Arrakis in his palm. 
he doesn't have Arrakis in his palm. He has no... I, I even like um, uh, the the sort of unintended, I believe, by the Baron, quite unintended, uh, double entendre in the last sentence of that first paragraph. It'll keep them occupied. Um, again, I don't think the Baron is intending that, but uh, but even there, you know, there's there's like this, this sort of delightfully... Um, delightfully sort of double meaning there, right? They are occupied uh, by the Harkonnens, um, but they're going to... The, the, the occupation uh, is uh, is about to be shifting around, and I'm thinking forward to, you know, Paul's talking about how he has the Harkonnens just where he wants them. Um, so anyway, so this... Uh, I wouldn't call the, the... You know, what's going on here, this sort of layer upon layer of of, uh, of interpretation and implication and irony um, that we see um, so 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 marvelously I think in this scene but in but in many other places also um, I, I, I'm not going to call it you know a perception of depth because that phrase has already been used Tolkien used that phrase and many more people have used it of Tolkien um, and I think I've talked about it already in this class because, of course, Frank Herbert does it quite well, too. Uh, the perception of depth, meaning that there is more to the story, that there is more to the world than what we see. The sense of untold stories and a long history and, uh, and you know, this sort of real experience, um, you know, living experience that this world has that we're only scratching the surface of. That's what... Um, uh, what Tolkien meant by the perception of depth, um, I, 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 but I, I'm not sure, quite sure, what to call this thing that I'm describing. Um, it's, it's not exactly depth. It's more like I don't know thickness, though that doesn't really convey it particularly well either. Um, the thickness of the layering of one thing on top of another, so that in order to really sort of drill down through to what's really happening, right? What people are really saying and actually thinking and, and, uh, and all of those things uh, become so, become so, so, so challenging. Um, yeah, you know, wheels within wheels, plans within plans, right? We see that happening on the narrative level in this way as well as sort of in the minds, um, in the minds of the people. Um, yeah, uh, one more Harkonnen scene, and this comes back to uh, the Baron's gaff that I was talking about with the Fenrings last time. So this is uh, uh, the Baron talking to Thufir Hawat. Um, and this is Thufir's suggestion for the resolution to the situation where he's he's like, oh man, you told Count Fenring two years ago? You you you, you dropped that bomb two years ago? You know, you, you, uh, you laid that particular egg two years ago? And they've had all this time to prepare and, you know, you don't have any idea, but doubtless they know, you know, here, here are the conclusions they're drawing about what you're doing and boy, do you look guilty. Um... He says, we still have our... Uh, this, so this is the... He's just said... You either have to kill everybody or you'll have to cut off Raban, right? Um, don't send him anything more. And the Baron says, well, what about the spice, right? How do I, how do I, you know, how do I, how do I, you know, and he says, well, demand your spice. How do I know um, he's going to, you know, uh, pay up and everything? And Thuver says, we still have our spies on Arrakis. Tell Raban he either meets the spice quotas or you set him or he'll be replaced. I know my nephew, the Baron said. This would only make him oppress the population even more. 
Of course he will, Hawat snapped. You don't want that stopped now. You merely want your own hands clean. Let Raban make your Seleucus Secundus for you. There's no need even to send him any prisoners. He has all the population required. If Raban is driving his people to meet your spice quotas, then the Emperor needs suspect no other motive. That's, that's reason enough for putting the planet on the rack. And you, Baron, will not show by word or action that there's any other reason for this. The Baron could not keep the sly tone of admiration out of his voice. Ah, Hawat, you are a devious one. Now, how do we move into Arrakis and make use of what Raban prepares? Um, so you see, um, see what Thufar Hawat has just done, right? Um, Thufar has devised a strategy whereby the Baron can not only potentially, possibly, get away with, you know, escape the consequences of the gaffe that he made, but also potentially, um, but also potentially still profit by it, right? Um, you know, it's like eating your cake and having it too, right? Um, uh, as a side note, that expression always puzzled me throughout my childhood. Um, I always asked with great, with great simple-mindedness, but how can you eat a cake that you don't have? <laughs> and I, I, I have since come to realize exactly what that means, like keep it, right? Uh, that is to preserve your beautiful cake um, untouched, but also to eat it. Um, I was pretty simple. Um, uh, Gerald Michael says it's more like eating your cake and taking someone else's also. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is kind of like that. But anyway, so, okay, so he's going he's gonna to get away with doing what he, oh, no, Seleucus Secundus, oh, no, 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 I'm not, I have no plans, right, I am totally not trying to train up, like, uh, you know, an alternative Sardaukar unit, no, no, not at all, while still creating the conditions to train up an alternative Sardaukar unit, right, so he's showing him how he can not only deflect uh, the Emperor's attention to the plan that he did not have, the Baron didn't plan that, Right, and um, you know it was not boldness; it was ignorance. Clearly, in retrospect, we're told clearly it wasn't boldness on the Baron's part; it was ignorance that led him to say those things to Count Fenring. He never, he never tried to do that. He didn't know a thing about it. He didn't even know. Not only did he not plan to do it himself, he didn't even know what the Emperor was doing. He didn't even know the role of Seleucus Secundus in the training of the Sardaukar. Had no clue, right? So Thufir's plan will allow him to, to sort of show, oh, no, I didn't know, but also let him receive the fruit of doing it as if he had known and had been planning it, in fact, all along, right? That's, um, that's, just, uh, that's just fascinating, right? That's, 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 that's really excellent. What a devious plan by Thufir Hawat, right? But wait... There's more, right? What's Thufir's plan? Um, we know it isn't to make the Harkonnen succeed. We know it isn't to, you know, Baron Harkonnen says, oh, he's, uh, he's, he's focused on his true enemy, right? He's, he's, uh, you know, his hatred for me is a casual thing now. He, he, uh, uh, he's really just trying to uh, get back at the Emperor. Um, so the Baron believes, as he's believed all along, that he's using Thufir Hawat, 
right? Um, he's going to use Thufir Hawat and his desire for vengeance. Um, Thufir Hawat wants to bring down the emperor. The the you know the Baron is quite cheerfully looking forward to seeing that happening, right? Um, but that's not just Thufir's plan, right? Um, this scene, what fascinates me about chapter two in book three, um, I'll call it chapter two even though it's not numbered as would be convenient, but um, in chapter two of book three, uh, we um, uh, we get a very different narrative approach from chapter one. Remember chapter one is where we were getting all of that, you know, Th people's words and people's thoughts and the and the the sort of the 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 interplay between people's words and thoughts and now we're not getting that you know we, we we get it occasionally in this scene but much much less and at the same time we are prompted to look at Baron Harkonnen in a completely different way do you notice that do you notice how smart Baron Harkonnen sounds in chapter one, right? It, the, he's the man on top of things. And that moment when it sounds like he's literally reading Fade Routh's mind, right? You think of me as an old fool. It's like, dude, right? The Baron is good, right? The Baron knows all. And now in chapter two, the Baron sounds like a complete imbecile, right? The Baron doesn't know anything. You know, the Baron is is so slow on the uptake, and through for how it has to be like, I will use small words so you can attempt to understand. Um, exactly, Philip Ward was just typing that. He seemed like an idiot in this scene. He absolutely does seem like an idiot in this scene. Um, and uh, I think that it's, the, the contrast there, I think, is really fascinating. Um, and one of, I mean, there are several sort of conclusions, several things um, that I think that we can sort of see from that. One is that, um, again, it depends on what grid you're looking through, right? Uh, chapter one is basically told from the Baron's point of view. Again, we keep hopping back and forth and we see what Fade Rautha is thinking, but the Baron is the central figure of that chapter. Um, chapter two is much more focused, uh, certainly in this conversation, on Thufir, right? And in this, in the context of this conversation, it seems that we're being shown the Baron more as he appears to Thufir Hawat than as he thinks of himself, right? Um, and uh, and I, I mean, anyway, I think it's, um, I think it's really, um, I think it's really fascinating how, how that's being handled. One of the one of the, the things that we can take from that, it seems again, is that we can't always trust what we think. Again, like last time, when we were doing our own speculation, we were do, doing our own readings, okay, why is the Baron saying these things? Is he just making a mistake or is he doing something devious? Did Thufir Hawat do something devious, right? Did Thufir Hawat somehow manipulate him into saying this in front of Count Fenring? Um, you know, I uh, and as we do that, right, again, as we do this thing that we've, the book has been sort of training us to do, to do this interpretation, this chapter is like a reminder. You know, when you do that, you're often wrong, right? Sometimes when you read into the implications behind, there's not actually 
implications behind what they're saying. Um, sometimes, uh, sometimes somebody is actually uh, just uh, uh, just just clueless, right? Um, and uh, and uh, and I still I'm still not a hundred percent sure about Thufir Hoth. I mean, this scene shows that the Baron clearly was not being bold or devious in the previous scene, right? That he literally, we know that he doesn't even have the data that would be needed to formulate the plan, which it sounds like he's hinting at in the scene with Count Fenring, right? So he clearly didn't mean that. I am less than 100% certain that Thufir Hawat didn't manipulate him into it. Now, I know that there's counter-evidence to that in this passage, right? Thufir Hawat doesn't even seem to know. He's like, what? You said what? Tell, it's very important. Tell me exactly what he said, right? And then he's like, how can we recover this? He doesn't, clearly didn't know that that conversation happened, right? That the Baron had said those things. Um, does that mean that he wasn't planting that in some sense? I'm less sure. I'm less sure of that. Um, I think it's quite possible that he is acting here like, oh my gosh, you did... Baron, I can't believe you did that, right? And then the Baron's all like, and not in a frame of mind to suspect that he's being played by Thufur Hawat. So again, it's possible. I, I, I personally leave the door open to the fact that this whole thing is still is playing out exactly as Thufur Hawat had planned. Even the possibility that Thufur Hawat knew full well about the conversation that Count Fenring had with the Baron, um, and the fact that Count Fenring went off and knew these things and started acting on these things, and but th but it fits Thufir Hawat's motives for the Baron to think that Thufir Hawat only now realizes this, right? Because it will explain why Thufir Hawat did nothing to thwart it. It's like, oh, dude, man, if you don't give me data, I can't process it, man, right? So I, you know, it's. Uh, it's I I still have my suspicions that Thufir had all of that planned, um, and Michael I agree with you. Michael Chuskowski is pointing um, out how you know amazing it is that Thufir Hawat has suddenly become amazingly adept and devious compared with how he was with the Atreides. Absolutely so, um, and I'm not quite sure what to do with that. On the one hand. I think it's possible, not probable, but possible that we were wrong. I think it's unlikely, but um, that is to say, it could be a question of grid again, right? Um, as we, we said at the time, and I was saying it pretty strongly, right through for how it looked like kind of an idiot when he kept screwing up. Um, and. Uh, uh, we saw little that seemed to, you know, any sort of, we saw little immediate justification for the, um, you know, the high praise and, uh, and, and great reputation that we're told through for how it has. Um, now here, when he is in the service of the Harkonnens, in theoretically, in the putative service of the Harkonnens, we see a great deal more of it. He seems to have earned his reputation um, a lot more um, which leads me to wonder, was he more on top of things, you know, back in the day than it seemed like he was? Um, 
yeah, Neil Ottenstein says it's also a matter of what data he has. This is certainly true. And Neil, I agree. Certainly, we still see that you know his uh, his blind eye towards Jessica, um, his uh, and what seems to be even in the way that he talks about it, an almost an unwillingness to confront the data that he does have. Right? You know, he's like. Just amazing! What a poisonous hatred she must have had for the Atreides to turn into, you know, I mean, to destroy her own son. I mean, wow! Right? She's really twisted. Um, that's that's actually not the way the data points. Right? It's just not. Um, it is a possible interpretation, but it is less plausible than others. Um, and anyway, so. Um, yeah, James Stevens is reminding us of you know the first time we met Thufir Hawat when he thinks of himself, when he identifies himself with the battered fighting dummy, right? Yeah, I mean, and I think that's 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 interesting. That's kind of revealing. It's it is almost like it is his failure, which he recognizes as a failure, right? His failure to calculate accurately. They were so close, right? He knew exactly what the Harkonnens' plan was going to be. He knew precisely what the trap that they were walking into was. They even anticipated the Sardaukar coming in Harkonnen uniforms. I mean, everything. They knew all that stuff. Um, but he got the scale drastically, fatally, horribly wrong. Um, so anyway, so he's screwed up. He failed to identify the traitor. He failed to anticipate the scope of the assault. The, in the, the response to that failure has been his you know, his uh, his greatest work, right? Um, and let's keep an eye on this. I want to come back to this next time when we see Thufir Hawat at the end of the story. Um, we're not going to get a lot of description of his plans. The question that the Baron himself asks in this chapter, he knows Thufir Hawat is plotting, right? What's he plotting? And he says, you know, how does this... He's thinking of, uh, you know, how we, when... Thufir is finally told that the Baron's plan, uh, you know, for Arrakis is to bring in Fade Rautha as a savior and for everybody to love him. Um, and uh, uh, and he, you know, Thufir pauses and he thinks about it and he pauses and he says, yeah, "I love this plan. It's a great plan. Yeah, let's have Fade Rautha be the savior." And the Baron, to his credit, is immediately suspicious, right? Like, I wonder how this fits in with with Hawat's own private plans, right? Um, we're not going to get much more reference to Hawat's private plans in the rest of this book. We will meet Thufir Hawat again, um, but it's not going to be explicitly, we're not going to be explicitly told what Hawat's plans were and how or if they come to, to fruition. So let's think about that. Um, pay attention to that. Uh, next time, um, again, it's just sort of left left to us uh, to uh, uh, to to sort of think through and interpret. Um, okay, I want to talk about um, I want to talk about Elia a little bit. Sorry, I'm getting a little thing in my throat. I think my voice will survive, but it won't be like that awful time last semester in my Chaucer class. I'm doing my Canterbury Tales class, and I was trying to teach on the Nun's Priest Tale, which is like my favorite Chaucer story, and uh, my voice just like totally went. It was just awful. 
<clears throat> so painful, both literally and figuratively. I think I'll be okay. All right. Um, Aaliyah's strangeness. There are two things I want to think about with Aaliyah. And again, we're, you know, many of the questions, I mean, most of the questions, arguably all of the questions we're going to ask tonight, um, are not really answered fully. Um, but I'm my focus is I want to bring them up so that we think about them uh, as we look at the end of the story over the next two weeks. Um, here are my questions primarily about Aaliyah. First of all, I want to make sure we understand what's going on with Aaliyah, right? So my question is as simple as, what really are we seeing? What really is going on with Aaliyah? But my second question is, why? How does it connect with the rest of the story? How does it fit with the other, you know, she is, yeah, this is fair to say, the only real new character we get in book three, right? Um, we get, you know, we get the Baron and Fade Rautha and, and uh, Thufar Hawat and Jessica and Paul and Stilgar and Chaney and, you know, but um, we, uh, we don't see, I don't see really, and Gurney, we don't really, but we don't, the only really new element of the story is Aaliyah. So why? How does Aaliyah relate to, because I mean, we have what has happened with Paul, right, which we looked at at the end of book one. Um, as we get to the end of book two, we see something happening to Jessica, right? This change of awareness comes upon Paul at the end of book one. This change of awareness comes to Je upon Jessica at the end of book two, and of course upon her unborn daughter. Um, the, the similarities, the connection, therefore, between Aaliyah and Paul, emphasized by the fact that, you know, that they're, that they're siblings, right, that they're brother and sister, um, it seems to me very enticing. You know, there's clearly something here that we need to think about, something here we need to figure out. Um, I don't think Aaliyah was just kind of tossed in there because she's cool. Um, there's, uh, you know, there's, what is the relationship between her own experience and the nature of her situation, and Paul, um, and the way that his, you know, she had an awareness come upon her, right, and he had an awareness come upon him. Similarities, differences, how do we, how do we, how do we see this? How do we work with this? Um, anyway, let's, um, so keeping those things in mind, let's, uh, let's look at couple of Aaliyah passages. Seeing her daughter, Jessica was caught, as she frequently was, by Aaliyah's resemblance to Paul at that age. The same wide-eyed solemnity to her questing look, the dark hair and firmness of mouth. But there were subtle differences, too, and it was in these that most adults found Aaliyah disquieting. The child, little more than a toddler, carried herself with a calmness and awareness beyond her years. Adults were shocked, 
to find her laughing at a subtle play of words between the sexes, or they'd catch themselves listening to her half-lisping voice, still blurred as it was by an unformed soft palate, and discover in her words sly remarks that could only be based on experiences no two-year-old had ever encountered. Hera sank to a cushion with an exasperated sigh, frowned at the child. Aaliyah, Jessica motioned to her daughter. The child crossed to a cushion beside her mother, sank to it, and clasped her mother's hand. The contact of flesh restored that mutual awareness they had shared since before Aaliyah's birth. It wasn't a matter of shared thoughts, although there were bursts of that if they touched while Jessica was changing the spice poison for a ceremony. It was something larger, an immediate awareness of another living spark, a sharp and poignant thing, a nerve simpatico that made them emotionally one. Okay. What have we learned here? Observations. What do you see? What do we get from this? Um, okay, good. Good. Interesting. Sharon, uh, Sharon Powell says, Aaliyah fits with the theme of the mouse unexpectedly turning out to be the most powerful creature around. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's neat, you know, Sharon, in that way it's almost um, uh she's almost like a, a sort of an exaggerated figure of Paul, right? You know, the child man, as Stogar calls him, um, you know, who bests Jameis without a wound on him, uh, you know, all, all, of those, uh, all of those kinds of things. Um, Michael Chiskowski says, you know, she seems to be a kind of like a Paul from birth, right? Um, yeah, I see what you mean, right? That, you know, what would it be like? No, she doesn't seem to have the same awareness, We'll look at that later. Where, you know, the next passage I want to do is her own description of her experience. But, um, but I want to think about uh, you know, what's emphasized here in this passage. And what's emphasized here is the manner of the connection between Jessica and Aaliyah. Right? Um, and that's not a thing... And again, Aaliyah's experience is like Paul's in many ways. I'm not disagreeing with that. Uh, but the emphasis that we get here is not precisely that. You know, she's not seeing herself as, a, as you know, a, 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 a nexus. You know, she's not looking out over the undulating kerchief of time. You know, we don't see, we don't see that exactly. Um, um, but uh, anyway, more. Yeah, Carissa is pointing out, again, the similarity to Paul. She was denied the choice of awareness. It was forced upon her. Um, yeah, and we talked about the way in which Paul seems to be sort of invaded uh, by, uh, you know, infected, again, being his word. Um, now, Joseph, uh, uh, Joseph Cano says, I think Paul had much more urgency in his own awareness, but Aaliyah was never given a choice. I agree. I, we do see, I mean, like I was just saying, I do think, you know, we see the awareness coming upon Paul, so in that way Aaliyah is kind of a figure for what happened to Paul. But Joseph, I think that your point is still an important one, too. She's an exaggeration, right? Um, Paul does have, or certainly believes himself to have more agency, more... I'm not sure control is quite the right way, but anyway, certainly more control than Aaliyah had, right? Aaliyah is the extreme example. Right? When this awareness comes upon her, you know, uh, uh, in utero, um, she's only an embryo at the time. Um, uh, yeah, she is, I was going to say, was she an embryo or a fetus? No, I think she's an embryo because, uh, uh, again, it's, we're told it's so early in the pregnancy, nobody else could even uh, suspect for any reason. Um, 
Yeah, good. Philip Lord points out how Jessica only gives birth to freaks. A yeah, pretty high freak quotient, I agree, among the Atreides children. Um, yeah, 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 good. Um, Trevor Briarly points out she's a mixture of adult and child. She still needs comforting like a child, even though she's far in advance, uh, you know, mentally and in her, and in her experience. Um, yeah, yeah, Philip Lord says she's not quite what the Bene Gesserit wanted in a, in a daughter. No, no, she's not. That's not how they planned it. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of hard for Jessica anymore to say, well, see, look, I gave you the Atreides daughter you wanted. No, that wasn't the Atreides daughter they wanted, precisely. But, but I think even more importantly than that, um, that is, to some extent, yeah, she is... Um, She's not quite what the Bene Gesserit wanted in a daughter, but in another sense, she's like exactly what the Bene Gesserit wanted in a daughter, right? Um, there is a sense in which Aaliyah is like the uber Bene Gesserit, right? She is like the embodiment of all things Bene Gesserit. Uh, again, to some extent. And I'm thinking here of the connection of the Reverend. She's born a Reverend Mother, right? Um, and uh, I think she's born Fremen Reverend Mother, but she's, um, but you know, we've got that connection between the Fremen Reverend Mother, and uh, uh, and the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mothers, and it's not just a traditional name thing, um, but the the spice drug, right? Um, the truth trance, the uh, uh, the the you know the way that. Uh, uh, the Reverend Mother Gaius uh, Helen Mohayam described it um, back in chapter. I don't remember the chapters because they're not numbered. But anyway, it's either one or three, or maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, when her description of the truth drug and the truth trance, right, um, that comes upon you, and Jessica says, "Yeah, you know," she recognizes this is pretty much the same thing. This is the experience that she has when she uh, gets into the memories of all of the Reverend Mothers that have come before um, that is like the, the uh, experience of, the, of, of, of Bene Gesserit Re Reverend Mothers. So again, Aaliyah is like um, uh, the embodiment of the, the sort of ultimate, you know, the, the highest level of Bene Gesseritude. And then, of course, we have her, you know, the, the description of her performing her Bene Gesserit training. Um, uh, you know, you kind of get the sense with Aaliyah that the, the, the kind of intensive mental and physical training that she's doing uh, as part of her Bene Gesserit training um, is, um, uh, is, is probably a little bit more advanced than it normally is for two-year-olds. Um, yeah. Michael Jaskowski points out that she looks into the past but not the future, right? Yeah, she only looks in one direction, not being the Cuisance Hanarak, right? But, um, yes, yes. Um, good, good. Um, yeah, let's see. Good night, sorry, you guys are uh, making lots of uh, observations here, so I'm just sort of sifting through here. Um, yeah, Patrick points out that he says that, you know, he's always found her to be a sort of vaguely creepy or disquieting character, a child in body, but with these very non-childlike characteristics. Yeah, I, I think that's one of her functions, right? Um, disquieting. Yes, she's disquieting. Um, uh, there will be trouble over Aaliyah. 
Um, but exactly those ways in which she's disquieting seem to be eye-opening in these particular ways, again, especially some of those parallels to Paul that we were talking about before, right? Um, Paul is also a freak, right? He is also unnatural uh, in, in, in some of these ways. It's just more obvious with Aaliyah, right? She really draws attention to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, no, Michael, I'm totally going to resist talking about Aaliyah in future books, which I, of which I was not a fan, by the way. In fact, it was one of the things I disliked most about the later books. But anyway, well, uh, I'm not going there. So not going there. Uh, good, good. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, Kevin, I'm not going to do it. No, no. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Um, Carolyn Morehouse says, Paul's many years of humanness give him a perspective that Aaliyah is lacking uh, because she was denied humanity. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, she is immersed in this. And this brings me back to observation that... Uh, Trevor Brierly made at the very beginning, um, which Trevor I skipped at the time because um, I didn't want to go here before we'd even read the passage. Um, but I think your 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 insight is really cool. Um, he says, "I think Aaliyah is the first man manifestation we get of the terrible purpose. She's already aware, in a way, that Paul is only moving towards um, the association between Aaliyah and the terrible purpose. Is I think a really fascinating one." Um, because race consciousness sounds really quite a lot like what we see in the Reverend Mothers, right? You know that 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 you know the connection with the, with the, you know Jessica talking about you know her body memory and all those things. Um, this seems to be uh, um, this seems to be uh, one of the um, one of the ways in which she she does kind of stand potentially as a symbol. I I I hesitate to make of Aaliyah a symbol um, because it would be easy to just sort of set her up purely as a symbol and therefore simplify her character. And I want to be cautious about that. Um, but anyway, um, thinking of her as almost like a manifestation of the race consciousness. It's that I think which is one of the things that makes her experience most cl closely related to Paul. Um, that's you know, the sort of the link between the two of them, that, that sort of shared experience of this awareness coming upon them. Well, what is the awareness that comes upon them exactly? Um, again, Paul sees things differently. We've got the pads and the nexus, and Elia doesn't talk like that. But what we do get is his insight into the race consciousness and even that image of infection that we've looked at before. Um, yeah, Patrick um, says she, she's a Bene Gesserit without the burden or benefit of human experience, right? Um, again, in a sense, making her like the ideal Bene Gesserit um, because she'll be with her mom at almost the opposite end, right? You know, her mom was a defective Bene Gesserit because she let her affection for her husband uh, influence her and she, she, she wasn't a good soldier, right? She wasn't a good Bene Gesserit. Um, she defied her instructions. Aaliyah 
Um, and why? Why did Jessica do that? Well, for very human reasons, right? Because she loved the Duke. She wanted to please him. Uh, Aaliyah, she's not totally separate from her hum humanity. We do see her having human emotions. I don't want to. I don't want to underplay that. Um, but again, there's this sense in which all of those uh, those things which have which sort of separate Jessica from the Bene Gesserits. Um, Aaliyah doesn't have sort of exactly the, the sort of the same thing. Tom asks, "Isn't that what makes her an abomination that she lacks the human experience?" Yeah, well, no, she's got plenty of human experience, Tom, right? She's got many people's lifetime worth of human experience. That's why she gets all these jokes and uh, is delivering innuendo in ways that seem shocking. Um, yeah, she's got too much, too much human experience. What she lacks is human identity in that sense, right? Um, this sort of sense of, the sense of, uh, the sense of who of who she is. Um, right, Tom, not, not of her own, right? Not, she doesn't have, um, she doesn't have her own life. You know, you think about, for instance, Aaliyah, um, you know, if Aaliyah were to be passing her own memories on to the next Reverend Mother, right? Um, what would she pass on? I mean, she has some memories of her own, but again, it's almost like she doesn't even have an existence outside of this consciousness, outside of this, this memory. Um, let's look at the let's look at that passage too. Just when I felt safe and reassured, so Elias recalling back to the moment, you know, the moment of her awakening, Elias said, "There was another spark with us, and everything was happening at once. The other spark was the old Reverend Mother. She was trading lives with my mother, everything, and I was there with them, seeing it all, everything, and it was over, and I was them, and all the others, and myself." Only it took me a long time to find myself again. There were so many others. It was a cruel thing, Jessica said. No being should wake into consciousness thus. The wonder of it is that you could accept all that happened to you. I couldn't do anything else, Aaliyah said. I didn't know how to reject or hide my consciousness or shut it off. Everything just happened. Everything. We didn't know, Hera murmured. When we gave your mother the water to change, we didn't know you existed within her. And of course, Jessica did know that she existed within her, but didn't recognize, didn't think about what the drug would do to her. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right, exactly, Nancy. Jessica knew, but she didn't understand what this exactly what the ritual was, what was behind this. Um, but uh, yeah, Carissa says this scene... Um, breaks her heart. Yeah, it's a very moving scene. It's, a, and, and again, that's fascinating. In Aaliyah, we're invited to see, again, this sort of creature, right, with almost no independent human experience, and yet our compassion for her is really stirred, right? Um, she is certainly, in our own thoughts, humanized by this moment, if by no other, right? And yet, we can see she's a freak, Right? She's a monstrosity. We can, we can sort of understand that. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. James Stevens says it really well. He says, most Reverend Mothers are people first who then acquire this other awareness. She is the awareness first. It has to discover herself. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I feel this is clearly fetal melange syndrome. Um, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a rare 
condition, but um, but uh, but pretty but pretty bad. Um, I didn't know how to reject or hide my consciousness. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, again, see here, I think, you know, in, in, in reading Aaliyah's experience, I can't help again thinking of Paul. Um, and um, his own experience with his awareness, his own sense of his consciousness, and the way in which his awareness and thoughts of himself um, are um, changed, you know, are sort of twisted as we go through. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to get to the passages I wanted to talk about, uh, about uh, Paul's own experience. Um, I should be, uh, I, I have a hard stop tonight. I need to, to let you guys go closer to on time uh, than, uh, than usual. But, um, but anyway, we've we've got plenty of time. We can we'll we'll finish that up next week. Um, but I do want to look at a couple of things briefly before as, as we sort of merge into Paul, and that is I want to be thinking about um, what has happened in those two years. I come back to you know Neil to your question that you emailed me about last week that I mentioned at the end of class last time, but we didn't get a chance to talk about why the two years. I mean, and when I say why, I don't. I, sh I, sh I shouldn't ask why questions because I don't really mean a why question. By why I don't mean what was Frank Herbert thinking when he made this particular choice. I don't mean that, though it sounds like that's what I mean. Um, what I mean is, what is the impact of those two years on our understanding of this story? How does it impact the story? Um, it is conspicuous. Because it's you know we have this book divided into three you know, this volume divided this story divided into three books right, um, but we didn't see that gap between book one and book two. When book two ends, we have every reason to to sort of expect that, like book two, it's going to pick up right where book you know where, where the last book left off, but it doesn't right. Instead, we get a two-year gap. Um, What's the impact of that? How does that change? How does that gap change how we look at things? Um, well, one thing that it does is it moves Paul forward into. So now we see that he's in a different place, right, with relationship to his awareness and to his prescient memories and all of these things. Um, that's what I think we're gonna have to wait until next time to uh, uh, to look at. But um, um, but Neil, that's a great way to think about it. Um, uh, Neil says uh, we don't see a gradual change in Paul's attitude. We see a sudden change, right? Um, I agree. And you know, Neil goes on to add, "We're we're as surprised as Gurney is." Um, yeah, Paul's different, and we can perceive the differences, and we can perceive them much more clearly than we would had we had we been watching the slow. Um, development and change from the one state into the other. And of course, Nancy, you're right. Oh, yeah, has to develop enough to have this conversation, right? Um, yes, yes. Uh, getting Aaliyah born. Again, you know, and, but, but again, to some extent, like, yeah, there are, like, plot reasons why it needs to happen. Um, but to me, that's not, the, that's not the really interesting answer to the question again. To, that, that, that's not really the interesting direction um, of, uh, of thinking about the question. To me, the really interesting direction is again: How does it impact? What kind of 
change does it bring about? And Neil, I loved your suggestion um, about that. It does give us almost the opportunity to see Paul through fresh eyes, right? Uh -oh. um, let me know um, something odd seems to be happening uh, my with my computer. If you have uh, audio or video problems, just let me know. Um, if uh, if things get too strange, I hope it should. But just in case, um, sometimes uh, go to meeting is a little alarmist in its uh, in its warnings. So I'll hope that everything is okay. Um, okay, yeah, having uh, video problems. Okay, as long as the audio is working, we'll be okay. We can uh, we can we 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 can live with it. Um, as long as you're hearing the audio, okay, okay, good. So tell me if you're hearing uh, if you're hearing the audio, okay. Um, all right, all right. Well, let's move on. I so said I'm going to stop in just a minute anyway. Um, so uh, it sounds like I'm coming through for most people. So I'll I'll, I'll carry on. Um, I want to come at Paul and exactly as Neil was suggesting, the ways in which Paul is is different here. Um, by um, by looking at the different perspectives that we get on him, sort of the different points of view. Uh, and one of them, of course, comes from our friend, uh, Princess Irulan. Great, see, look, now I'm getting the, uh, I'm getting my rainbow view here. Okay, here we go. Good. Um, here's Princess Irulan's assessment in Muad'Dib, The Religious Issues. Notice how we get several new books in book three. Did you notice that? I hope you've been uh, paying attention to the titles uh, as we've gone through. We get a number of new titles in, bo in book three, uh, which is fascinating. Anyway, you cannot avoid the interplay of politics within an orthodox religion. This power struggle permeates the training, educating, and disciplining of the orthodox community. Because of this pressure, the leaders of such a community inevitably must face that ultimate internal question, to succumb to complete opportunism as the price of maintaining their rule, or risk sacrificing themselves for the sake of the orthodox ethic. Okay. Um... Yeah, Nancy, it's a fantastic question. Of course, we don't know the answer. Nancy says it makes her wonder even more about the publication dates of Princess Irulan's works. Um, are these ones that we're getting introduced to later in the story? <clears throat> are these her later works? Uh, or not? I, again, I, I do think it's a, it's a great question. Of course, we, we really don't have any, uh, uh, any good data on that point. But um, anyway... Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Yeah, Josh asks a great question. He said, uh, "It makes me wonder things like, did Paul really make drums out of human skins?" Um, yeah, that hasn't been confirmed, right? We're told that it's a rumor, but anyway. Um, more on this quotation here. More from Princess Irulan. What do we see in this, and what are its implications for Muad'Dib, the religious issues? Um, this passage strikes me as quite thoroughly cynical, right? Um, this sounds to me as cynical as the Missionaria Protectiva. Um, the, this seems to be spoken from the point of view of the Bene Gesserit grid, again, that same Bene Gesserit grid, which sees 
superstition and religion as a thing to be manipulated in order to achieve certain ends without any real indication it would seem that there could be something in it that it could that there could be truth or reality in those things um, you know it's the sham as uh, as Jessica calls it um, there seems to be at least my reading of Princess Irulan's words here are that she is implying the same kind of sham status of um, all of the Orthodox religious people here, right? That she's describing. Um, uh, the inevitable choice, right? The internal question that uh, all leaders of Orthodox communities must inevitably face, according to Irulan, is what do they succumb to complete opportunism to maintain their rule or risk sacrificing themselves for the sake of the Orthodox ethic? My, how I understand her, her language is not at its most transparent here, um, but how I, what I, how I understand Princess Erlon is that she's saying, okay, if you are the leader of an orthodox religion, and by orthodox I take her to be meaning you know, a religion which states very clearly that some things are right and some things are wrong and, um, and, and insists on an orthodoxy of belief among its, uh, among its adherents, if you are leading such a religion, you know, a religion which is not flexible, which is not synchroni uh, uh, syn syncretistic, um, then uh, then you're gonna you're gonna have a problem, right? Um, if you make out like the orthodox ethic, right, the belief system of the religion is bigger than you, you might have to sacrifice to it, right? Um, you, you can't be sure how that's... If you want to be sure to stay on top, you have to be willing to be opportunistic, right? Um, you've got to be willing to be flexible, um, which might mean compromising the orthodox ethic, right? If a, if a certain challenge to your authority comes up, you might need to change the rules in order to stay in power. It's good. It could happen, right? So you have to decide it's which, which one is really bigger. Are you bigger... Than the than the orthodox code, or is the orthodox code bigger than you, right? Um, this seems again. This is my understanding of what Princess Irulan is saying here. So, how does that apply to the religious issues of Muad'Dib? Well, again, the implication is in my reading of the Princess Irulan's words here, I don't see much real scope for. The question, what if the orthodox ethic is, in fact, bigger than the leader, right? It's almost like, again, like the Missionaria Protectiva, there's this sort of assumption underlying her in the entire structure of her, of her discussion here that sort of implies, granted that you as leader of a religious, uh, of an orthodox religion, are just manipulating this for your own, the sake of your own power. Right, you know um, that fundamentally, it's kind of a it's kind of a political thing, anyway. Right? Granted that you're just trying to manipulate it for your own ends, you're going to be confronted with this, and you got to figure out how to negotiate it. Right? Um, that assumption again, and, and which I take to be a quite cynical assumption, just as I was suggesting, you know, that we could see a cynical assumption 
in the Missionaria Protectiva outlook, right? And I think we can see a similar one here. This is an, a really fascinating, this, um, this little chapter starter, you know, this quotation from Princess Irulan has a different and more immediate kind of relevance to the story that's happening around it, um, I think, than we see in, uh, in many of her other quotations. Again, sometimes we'll see, you know, like when she gives us the passage about the Duke Leto leading into, you know, one of the chapters about, about Duke Leto. I'm not saying that they're not sometimes relevant like that, um, but rarely are they making an explicit sort of commentary upon it or really sort of prepping us to, to, to understand things in a or inviting us uh, to sort of contextualize the whole thing in a particular way. Um, but um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Josh asks, can we see this playing out with Paul and Stilgar? To an extent, yeah. I mean, you know, Josh, the question of uh, sacrificing yourself for the sake of the orthodox ethic, um, you know, ways change, right? Josh, that does seem to play exactly into what Irwan is describing here, right? But I'm not sure that makes her right. Um, just because her description is apt doesn't necessarily mean that her assumptions are correct. Um, I think there's plenty of evidence in this book that the Bene Gesserit grid is inadequate. I think that we got, we were prompted to see that way back at the beginning when Paul could see through, or rather hear through, because of his truth sense, um, his instinct for rightness, remember that, um, how the Reverend Mother is explaining to him about how the truth drug works and, you know, and, uh, all of those things. And, and he was saying, she believes what she's saying, but she's wrong. That's not how it is. That's not what really happens. Um, and Gerald, yeah, I do think Irohan is channeling the Bene Gesserit grid in this quote. This sounds to me like a, a, a very pure version, uh, a very pure illustration of the Bene Gesserit grid. Um, so again, so we see... Um, uh, we see the the way in which Princess Irwan gives us this one grid through which to look at Paul and the Muad'Dib thing and what's going on um, with Paul, what has been happening for the last two years and where we are in the process now. Um, to me, even more interesting is uh, what we get from Jessica. Um, Jessica was fearful of the religious relationship between himself and the Fremen, Paul knew. She didn't like the fact that people of both the one or two syllabled uh, uh, Siege, as I said I will call it, um, both Siege and Graben referred to Muad'Dib as him. And she went questioning among the tribes, sending out her Sayadina spies, collecting their answers and brooding on them. She had quoted a Bene Gesserit proverb to him, when religion and politics travel in the same cart, the riders believe nothing can stand in their way. Their movement becomes headlong, faster and faster and faster. They put aside all thought of obstacles and forget that a precipice does not show itself to the man in a blind rush until it's too late. Okay. Now, 
you know, as I said in my subtitle, Jessica is late to the party here. She is late in being worried about the religious partnership between Paul and the Fremen, right? Paul's been worried about that for a long time. We see him worrying about that um, because he's nobody is more familiar with the whole uh, 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 the issue of runaway carts, right? Um, he's been afraid of the runaway cart that is the jihad for a long time. Um, yeah, Patrick and Gerald were both saying you know, flashing jihad warning signs here. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there could be a precipice up ahead. And Paul has known this. Remember that scene that we looked at? You know, in not uh, last class, but in the in the end of book two class, um, about you know where he says, you know, my mother is my enemy, right? She is what she is acting to bring about to bring about the jihad. And we talked about that how how you know very understandable it is for Jessica to do what she does, right? She, you know, and, and we were asking the question, what does winning look like, right? What what will success look like? Um, what is What's the alternative to the jihad? Um, and uh, and and we don't really know. But now we see Jessica, who is all like, "Yeah, we got to play on that." She's playing up to the religious connection, right? Um, she is trying to manipulate it, Benny Gesserit style, right? Missionaria protectiva style. Um, and now she's worried, right? Um, now she's. Uh, um, <laughs> Nancy, I agree. Uh, Nancy Fosberg says, uh, you know, she's laughing at the Bene Gesserit having a proverb like that, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, the, the, this really long uh, and sort of comical idea of, you know, this, uh, this crowded cart plunging over a precipice. I agree. It does seem uh, an unexpectedly sort of funny and uh, home, homey kind of, uh, kind of, Comparison, Nancy. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. Gerald says, "Okay, Jessica is now realizing this might be a bad thing, or there might be some negative consequences of this." But she takes no credit for having helped things to get to this state. Um, yeah, yeah. Her own lack of awareness, lack of recognition, right? That she was. Um, well, I won't say to blame, but very. You know, again, that she was his enemy, right? She was trying to. Uh, bring the situation, not knowing that it was going to bring the jihad, but um, but uh, uh, but but deliberately trying to bring this situation about. And now she's worried, right? Now she's concerned and thinks that it might be dangerous. Um, yeah, Michael says she's flashing the warning signs after the cart's gone over the cliff already. Um, uh, yeah, again, like she doesn't need, you know, Paul doesn't need to be told uh, about headlong plunges over cliffs um, he's been he's been he's been looking at that um, okay well let's pause here um, until next week and I want to come back and I want to start off by looking at where Paul's own perspective is what has changed not just in our outlook towards him when we'll continue talking about that um, but Paul's own outlook Paul's own experiences what's What's different now? What do we see changing? Uh, and then we will work our way towards the ending. Um, but I don't make even the vaguest and most optimistic promise of finishing up all of our discussions of book three next time. Uh, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll see how far we get. But uh, I think we'll we'll definitely be using all of our all of our last weeks. But anyway, thanks very much, everybody. 
Um, thanks for uh, for bearing with a, a few brief technical uh, glitches, and um, we will um, uh, I will see you guys next week for clo- moving closer to the end of the story. Don't forget to vote. Uh, if you haven't voted yet, don't forget to uh, uh, to, to to log on and and uh, vote for the next book that we're going to talk about in the next class. Uh, and if you haven't gotten a chance uh, to to contribute to our campaign yet, I strongly uh, you know recommend that you do so. I urge you to do so. We are uh, um, you know it, it, we have been able to do really great things this past year with uh, the donations that you guys gave us last year. So, um, you know, I certainly ask you guys to help us to keep this going. And, and again, let's see if we can expand the program. Let's see if we can do some, we can add on some new things uh, for next year uh, if, we can, if we can continue uh, with the campaign. So thanks very much, everybody, and I will see you guys next week. Good night.